Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of This Is Not Church with your host. Uh, this is Nat Turney, and with me is my brother, John. Say hi, John. Hello, everybody. You're supposed to say hi, John. Come on, man. It, all those years of watching Gracie, uh, Grace and Allie, or how's that, what was that show with George Burns and Burns and Out? Anyway, stopping it. Scrap that, John. I'm starting over. Three, two. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church with John and Nat Turney. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of This Is Not Church with your hosts. I am Nat Turney, and with me, as always, is my my older brother, John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. Ah, uh, you, <laughs> you're so clever. <laughs> Too clever by half. Oh, uh, man, we're, we're glad to have with us today my good buddy, Michelle Collins. Um, say hi, Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Oh, see, I'm going to get something going. This is, <laughs> I catch I'm on gonna, quick, see? Let me, let me tell you a little bit about Michelle. Um, uh, Michelle is the wife, the wife, and mother to four grown children. Uh, she served in the U.S. Marine Corps, is currently pursuing a doctorate in psychology. That deserves big whoops, um, as well as additional degrees in biblical studies and Christian counseling. An introvert dedicated to fitness of both body and mind, Michelle possesses the rare ability to participate in a discussion and see both sides without disparaging those with whom she might disagree. She is currently writing a book on the grief cycle applied to religious deconstruction. That is Michelle's bio. I want to give you my bio. I (laughs) did this to Brad yesterday. (laughs) You're going to get the same treatment because that's a good bio, man. Yeah, I didn't write it. Oh, you didn't? No. Oh. What kind? It was it good. Whoever, for me. whoever wrote that, awesome. My bio would read something like this. Michelle Collins is a bona fide badass, <laughs> superhero, warrior, smasher of the patriarchy, mm-hmm. destroyer of misogyny, defender <laughs> of the faith. And uh, man, I, I, I fell in love with you the first time that we met online. Um, and yeah. I think we might have met through, um, was it probably it was Michael Harden's group, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. I think yeah. so. So, um, and that recalls really cool days of yes. um, just crazy deconstruction, like just crazy, like nothing's off the table. Let's right. talk about all of its stuff. And it was fun. Uh, you can't go yeah. back. Um, but if I could, I'd go back there for a few minutes and, and, <laughs> and spend some time there because it was it was a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, it was um, a lot of learning curves there and oh man, a lot of information that I had never seen before and I studied a lot of stuff with Michael and it was it was a wild ride. So <laughs> hanging with Michael is always an awful lot like drinking from the fire hose, don't you I think? I agree, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like, oh my gosh, there's just so much and I was on such a steep learning curve at the yes. time and um, it was perfect for the time. For the time, yeah. For the time it was exactly <laughs> what I needed and then um, actually, I talked to Michael not too very long ago, and I kind of waxed nostalgic about that. And he kind of like, hey, can't go back again. Yeah, <laughs> I, was like, I no, know. He's uh, very matter of okay. fact about I, it. So. You're right. But can I be nostalgic for a minute? Just for um, a second. Those days when I longed for him to, you know, copy one of my posts and call know, it a right? grand slam dinger home run. And like, oh, Michael, re- oh, he reposted me. Those come up in my memories from time to time. And I always like kind of chuckle about them. So it was funny because it was. Uh, and I know we're already into the conversation. This is great. It was so mimetic, wasn't yes, it? Yes, very much so. Yes. And, and, and that's what's funny to me is people that know the most about mimetic theory often are the biggest per- pursuers of mimetic stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they often fall into that more than than 
what we notice in other people. It always it, cracks it, me up. It should be obvious to those guys, right? right. Yeah, it should be. And, and it, it should have is. been. And it was like, and, and it, well, it just goes to show that Gerard always said that that stuff is so subconscious, you know, and, and, and it's, it takes a certain level of arrogance to think that you will recognize it in the moment. Yeah. yeah. I tease Matthew about it all the time. I tease him and, and I'm like, you're being my medic again. He's like, shut, right. up. shut up, shut up. No, I'm not. No. You are. Exactly. I'm more, I, I'm more my medic than you. Exactly. And I'm very competitive. So I will, I will go at that hard all day. I tell you, I, I had to get out of all the Gerard groups because there was so much scapegoating going on. Yes. There was so much it was, it was, it was the irony was just staggering. It really was. I, I, I got out of all of them too, because I just didn't have the patience anymore. <laughs> no, I still consider myself, um, I wouldn't say a Girardian per se. I, I, somebody told me once that they now consider Girard a tool in the toolbox and that's great. Yeah. And, and the problem with being a Girardian or an anything in yes. is that you think that that now applies across the board and it's, you know, right. it's sort of some sort of panacea. Well, you know, it, it comes down to this. I think it's whenever we are learning something new, it suddenly becomes the totality of truth for us in sure. that moment. And and then after a while, we kind of deconstruct that and we realize, yeah. oh, that again, it was just a point on the journey, you know? So I think there's a lot of really cool things about mimetic theory. I, I don't think I know enough about it, but the, what I do know, I feel like really helps me understand other people a lot of the time. Um, but again, yeah, there's those blind spots. So, but to the extent that it doesn't help us understand ourselves, right? <laughs> it starts to go, well, okay, that's, that's a, that's a fun parlor trick. Sure. You know, that's, that's, that's fun to pull out at parties and, you yeah. know, but it, or quiz shows, you know, when you know something nobody else does, but, <laughs> but, but what you said just now struck me and I want to John the chime in on this too, but, um, when you start, first become aware of something and it's mind blowing, right? right. And it's like, oh my God, how did I not see this? Uh, and then it, it becomes the totality, Yep. right? It just becomes your obsession. Um, I did that with grace. Me oh, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I, wanted, I wanted to hear both yours and John's take on, on if you were, you know, and I'm not deconstructing grace. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, I am. But at least deconstructing my understanding of it. But there was a period of time for me where, where man, that was the hill I was going to die on. Yeah. Uh, that was, you know, I was... I was following all the grace guys. I was radical grace, whatever you want to call it. Even went to global grace seminary. Me too. Me um, <laughs> too. Hey, all three of us. I never finished because I, I got really, either. I still uh, keep thinking I'm gonna. I'm going to. I'm not gonna. I got. I got a little disgusted with some of the reading material, and I'm like, why are you yeah. pushing these books in us? And they're crap. And they're. Yeah. But I wanted to hear your take on that. You know, and and again, I want John to chime in too. But how did you move beyond that, or what was your impetus to move beyond that? Grace for me was kind of a, an epiphany. I mean, it's a word you grow up knowing in the church. I just think that often it's not something that we get to experience very often in the church. And ironically, um, my pastor at the time was the one that told me I needed to learn what grace meant because I was wow. very, I'm, I am very difficult on myself. I'm very hard on myself. And so that was his take that I needed to learn grace. But then when I did learn what grace looked like, and it went beyond what he was comfortable with, that was my exit from the church. Right. And ironically, I always attribute that to him. Like, you're the one that told me I needed to learn grace. And so I did. But as you said, that was the hill that I thought I would die on. And then one day I woke up and realized that grace is not the be all end all. Grace is just the open door for you to explore all that's out there. Right. 
you know, and, and that'll make other people uncomfortable. Oh, it will. That'll make them very, you know, it'll give them the willies here and there. And they'll be like, no, that's not good. <laughs> Cause they're stuck on that, that grace hill. Right. And they want to get defensive about their position. Right. Right. What do you think, John? I, I agree. I mean, so my story is slightly different because I left church for so long. So I stepped back into church, uh, I guess what about, or not church, back into the faith, I guess, about seven years ago now. So this whole grace movement was just kind of, just got its wheels under it for, for lack of a better term. And so I, I, I had to like hit the ground running because uh, the church I left was very charismatic, very, very legalistic, very all that, right? And so I knew if I was going to step back into faith that I was gonna, not going to step back into that. Because there was, I mean, why would I go back into what I left, you know, kicking and screaming 30 plus years ago? Uh, <laughs> so this, this idea of grace was just like, oh my God, I cannot believe that this is the God that I was never taught, right? So I'm like Nat says, I'm just picking up every book I can find about grace, you know, hyper grace, grace this, grace that, whatever. And what you find out though, as you start joining the grace Facebook groups, right? Is there's not a lot of grace there. No. <laughs> um, so you start you start questioning things about the the way they're putting works back into grace, right. or the way they're saying, well, yeah, the grace is good up until a point, or it's grace, but right. We keep hearing that grace, but, and you you, you push back on that. I was actually a, a moderator on a grace Facebook page, a private group, and was privately asked to leave. <laughs> because uh i apparently oh, didn't understand yeah yeah right? yeah well, and they did it privately that's gracious well i i wasn't given a chance to respond i was i was given a private message that uh that you know i wasn't i didn't understand the biblical side of this um i went to the group to see if i could uh maybe make a comment on what i had posted i was kicked out blocked and banned before i could even respond and I'm like, and I think I sent a message to Nat. I'm like, and there's, there's the grace movement for you right mm -hmm. there in a nutshell, right there. And I think that was my, that was my exit. Um, but, but Michelle, how many grace groups have we been kicked out of? <laughs> Too many to count. And, and it goes back to what we were just saying about mimetic theory, that often those people that know the most about it are blind to the fact that they are very mimetic themselves. Right. The same thing goes in any kind of movement, but certainly within the grace movement, that was my experience is they really had a blind spot on how to be grace, gracious. Right. Right. And, and yeah, as soon as you went beyond what they were comfortable with as, as it pertained to grace, you were persona non grata. Right. Right. Because now you just made everybody uncomfortable. Well, and did you notice that, and I won't name names cause it's not important, <laughs> but I have found that those biggest leaders you know, uh, those with the largest platforms and the biggest stages were the most authoritarian when it came to, you know, not touching God's anointed. Right. And I can think of two or three that I got kicked out of personally by a person that I respected and loved and said, and I was just unceremoniously, boop, you're out of this group because I dared to question something like penal substitutionary atonement. Right. You know, I remember getting into a big myth with, and I think you were, might've been, you were probably part of that because we, we oh, weren't boy. very, we were, we were a little bit gangster in how sometimes, remember that? Somebody would come onto Michael's page and be like, hey, some knucklehead just posted this. Let's go trash him. And we'd go troll somebody mercilessly. Right. And then, and then, and then come back to the group and go, man, yeah, I got booted. I got booted. Yeah. You know, yeah, it was, it was almost a badge of honor. 
Yeah, it was. It was. And there was, there was, you know, some ungraciousness and all of that as well. I'll admit it was a little fun. Yeah. Sometimes being a troll is fun, but, <laughs> but I found that there were a few people that were instrumental in my exit from fundamentalism, Yeah, but who then could not sustain me. Right. And I don't want to say that I've moved beyond grace. I have not. No, I don't think I'll ever move beyond, um, but I've moved deeper does that make sense? Or maybe, yeah. uh, maybe into a more complex understanding of it. Um, I don't know that we get away from it personally, but there were places where they're like, well, their grace was so radical up to here. Right. Right. And then, well, okay, well, but then how does that pertain? Your God is so gracious and yet, oh, well, 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 yeah, but that's Bible. That's the Bible. There's, you know, there's still limits to their radical grace. And so, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. I know that I upset a lot of people when I made a comment about the fact that by definition, grace is not grace until it is abused. Right. And that upset a lot of people. But that's just truth. If you're going to look at the very definition of the word, there is no such thing as grace until you have to give it to somebody for stepping beyond your boundaries. Right. And yet people are still putting boundaries on grace itself. And that's why I got to a point where I just realized like, this is a sticking point for some people and it's okay. They were a point on my journey, but that doesn't mean that they are the end of my journey and I can go beyond them. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with them. It just means that I've moved beyond that and I have a different understanding. And if grace is what it's supposed to be, that's okay. A hundred percent, a hundred percent agree. And that that's, that's, that's an interesting part of, of our journeys. And I, I like the fact that, you know, so many of our journeys, we share some of it, but mm-hmm. it's so unique. Yeah, very much. You so, know, yeah. there are definitely some 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 landmarks along the way where we can go. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And, right. but, but the but everything else about it is so individual. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the one thing that movements. I remember Caleb Miller telling me one time I brought up Caleb in like every podcast. You better be <laughs> get, you better give me some kickbacks that uh, little hobbit. Maybe um, give anyway, me some beer or something. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> you know, he owes me some. He owes you but, beer. <laughs> um, but he, he, he made a joke about movements. You know, I was like, he doesn't like movements because, right. you know, it's like, it's a movement. They move. And, and that his obvious association was, you know, with some other kind of movement. So he just thinks they're full of crap. <laughs> and sounds like Caleb. And yeah, sounds, he was less couth. Um, yeah, I imagine. <laughs> and, uh, but, but I, but I believe that's to be, I believe that to be true, you know. So I stopped seeking movements. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm done jumping on the bandwagon of the next big thing. And, even, and, maybe, and maybe even that is jumping on the next big thing, of maybe. not jumping on the next big thing. But I think it's a natural part. Of course, you know, one of the things that we're, we're talking about without really naming it here is deconstruction. Absolutely. And, and yeah. everybody's doing that at their own pace. And it's very subjective and specific to the individual. And because of that, there's a point and I can almost look at people on their posts on Facebook and I can kind of gauge where they are in, in, right, in, you in, know, process. in an overall process, because there's that, like you said, there's that need to argue for a long time. There's that need to correct. And then after a while you, you're silent. And then all of a sudden you've reached this point, and this is kind of where I've been for a while, like, I really don't care to convince anybody. I'm just not interested. I'm just not. Because it's too much energy on my part, and they're not ready for it. And they'll get there when they're ready. I don't have to do anything. Right, right. Do Okay, let me ask you this, then. It kind of segues mm-hmm. into what I wanted to talk to you about, then. Um, you said the process, and you named some stages of that process. Yeah. 
Do you see a correlation between that process and, say, the process of grief? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was actually my thesis contention for my doctorate. And then, of course, I ended up writing about it anecdotally. But the the process of deconstruction in its entirety is nothing but a psychological process. And there's incredible emotion that goes along with that. And one of the things that I came to realize as I was going through the process, because, and I'm sure you'll relate to this or anybody that's gone through any kind of portion of deconstruction will relate, you kind of feel like you're losing your mind for a little while. Right. And, and there's a deep sense of sadness and anger. And there's all these things. And all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, I'm grieving. That's what this is. And for each one of us, it'll be grieving different things. You know, for some of us, we're grieving time. Like how much time have I wasted believing something that I no longer believe? Right. For some of us, we're grieving relationships that we've lost because our, our viewpoints have changed. For some of us, we're grieving family. And then there's a point where we're grieving God. Like I have to, I have to look back and think about this God I've always, always worshiped and realize he's not a good guy. Mm. And how sad is that, that I was okay with that? You know, there's this whole process. And then you get to the point where I really feel like I am now. And to me, I call this the final deconstruction. It's you. You have, you grieve you because you're trying to understand how you missed all of this or where you are in life or where you want to be and why you're not there. And it's, it's, it's kind of a tormenting little process. Right. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Do those stages of grief, are those still, is that, is that still current psychological thought, you know, yeah. denial, yeah. you know, whatever anger. So I didn't, I didn't know if that'd be, if that's passe now. And like, you know, I'm talking about the four food no. groups with somebody who's a nutritionist <laughs> and they're going to slap yeah, me and go, passe. that is so, that is so <laughs> 20th century, man. Right. So <laughs> no, grief, grief remains pretty much the way it's been defined, the five stages of grief. Um, I think that most people or maybe I'm misspeaking there. I know that some people, and I was one of them for a while that really thought that grief had a very linear process mm. And that you hit each one of those stages. And once you completed that stage, you were done and you went on. But that's not the case. Those come back around and they come around with a different understanding each time. And so maybe you go a little deeper into the grief of something or the anger. You know, you're angry all over again. Because I catch myself being angry. Because my big expression of grief was depression and anger. Right. Um, and so, and I used to get so pissed off with people that were like, I don't understand why you're so negative about deconstruction. I just woke up one day and God was love. And I was like, well, good for you. Yeah. How exciting <laughs> now, for you. Now piss off. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any patience and for let you. let the grown ups wallow. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. I am angry. I, so. need, I need to stew for a minute. <laughs> exactly. I need to ruminate in this for a little while, but that's just the thing. So think about anytime you've ever grieved something, you know, hopefully not, but if you've lost somebody or a relationship, you know, there was a period of time that you grieved and it was very specific to you. Your expression of it was your own. Well, the same holds true here. It's your expression, your experience. Right. And nobody should tell you what that looks like. Nobody should put a timeline on it for you or tell you that you should be done right now. Right. It's yours. You know, my mother participated. She did um, grief counseling for a long mm-hmm. time as a layperson, you know, mm-hmm. and that was the one thing that I think she took away from that and shared with me was that grief is so individual. Yes. Um, it, it and, and she she mentioned the nonlinear thing quite a bit. Like you don't get to just track through these stages and go, well, next, next, next. Woohoo, I'm done. Yeah. Actually, I've, I've completed it. It's like the stages of a video game or something. Yeah. It's like... Where's my award? I get to sew a patch on, right? Where's my 30, my 30 day chip of grief. 
Well, it's, yes. Yeah, as, as soon as you check off all the boxes and you hand in the slip, then you get your reward back. You get right, your reward. Exactly. And that's what people think it is. What normally happens is the second you think you're over it, you get your ass kicked again. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I like to call them sneaker waves, you know, because they perfectly nice day. No, no, I don't see them coming. I, John and I lost our, our cousin to suicide mm-hmm. uh, not too long ago. And it was it, it was and is heartbreaking yes. and heart wrenching. And I, I'm sure John was actually much closer to him than I was. Um, they lived near each other. and um, But I grew up with him. He's one of my best friends. And that grief process, I went through it fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And then I'm minding my own business, chilling at the beach one day, metaphorically, and bam, I'm on the ground, you know, and I'm back at stage one. Yeah. You know, this can't be. How can this be? This wasn't supposed to be like this. And and I know talking to some people through their deconstructive process, I know, John, you can speak to this for a second, but um, I remember you telling me how pissed off you were, you know, like that, that, that if that God who you had been, who yeah. you had discovered yeah you know, 30 years later had been introduced to you in your youth, you might not have had, you know, so I, I don't want to speak for you, but what, what right. was your thought on that? Well, I mean, it's like, it's like Michelle was just saying, it's like, it's, uh, time was stolen from me. Right. And, you know, looking back now, now that I'm, I can get past that, that, that stage or whatever you want to call it, uh, I can look back at it and say, well, yeah, but look at all the good things that happened in those 30 years. You know, I had a lot of really good things in my life, you know, I got married during that. I had kids during that. But yeah, I mean, there's a there's a part of me and it kind of, it fits with the grief of, a, of a, the death of somebody, right? So deconstruction, what we're saying like the grief towards losing somebody is very personal. Uh, this The grief that happens through deconstruction is, is super personal. And for people to come on to Facebook groups or whatever, whatever you want to say, and then try to like yeah. analyze you and explain to you for lack of a better description, to, to mansplain <laughs> to you why you're feeling this way right now and how we can help you through this process. Right. So yeah, I mean, anger and it pops up all the time, you know, and you, and you think you're over it and then you're not, and then you think you're over it and you're not. But we need a term for that, for that, John, for when people try to condescendingly explain God to you, just call it God-splaining. God-splaining. Allow, yeah, me, to, God-splaining? allow me, Michelle, to God-splain something to oh, you. Excellent. You don't... You, you don't actually have the same revelation that I have I right gotcha. now. And I just, I want to, I want to share this with you. Um, God's plane. Hey, I have this special spiritual anointing that allows me to see a little deeper into this. Yeah. God likes me a little <laughs> bit more than you. So yeah. Oh Lord have mercy. I was, I was talking to my wife this morning and we were, you know, a lot of this stuff happens. And again, I'm, I'm still talking about deconstruction because it's interesting to me. Sure. <laughs> So, but a lot of this happens beneath the surface, don't you think? Yes. Like before you even put a name to it. So I was asking my wife, I'm like, well, cause, cause the one thing that we have never done is we've never thought about this. Thankfully, we've not been on the same page. We've been in different places in our journeys. Um, and I started this process before she did, but I was always a lot more skeptical than she was anyway. So to the degree that somebody is a hardcore believer in something, some piece of certitude, some piece of, religious formula mm-hmm. that now is like rent asunder, you know, I, do you think that that has a deeper effect? You know, like for me, kicking some of the stuff to the curb wasn't that hard. Mm. I didn't actually really believe it in the first place. I found that I'm like, okay, well, I, I was super skeptical of the prophets and the healers and the, you know, some of the, the circusy atmosphere, the, what yeah. do we call it? The, the, the charismania of, of some of it, you know, so that wasn't hard for me to jettison. 
that was rough on my wife. And so she fought that a little harder. Um, but there was a point where that stuff didn't work anymore. And I wanted to ask you about if there was a point for you where something that you had put a lot of trust into just didn't work. And if that was part of the impetus to go, well, maybe that's all crap. I'll be real honest and say that I am currently in a place right now, I, and this drives one of my friends crazy, one of my face-to-face friends. He asked me if I still believed in God, and I said, most days. Uh, and he went, what? I what love do you mean that. by that? You have to believe in God? I said, no, I actually don't have to believe in God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. Oh, my God. And I'm like, see, but you are responding from all of this religious indoctrination that you've that you've experienced. For me, I'm still trying to figure out God. I'm still trying to wrangle how God could be what I was always taught he was. And in all honesty, there are days when I fear that he is actually all that I taught. I was mm. taught he was. And now I'm really on the outside. So I have those PTSD moments. I think that for people that are really deeply indoctrinated, it is a very difficult process. But I also really think that it depends on your personality. Sure. I think that plays so much into everything because we can both have the same level of indoctrination, but you will handle it differently than I do because mm. you have a very different personality than I do. So for me, I'm a very introverted person. I'm very introspective, analytical, structured. I have to look at everything from 1,500 different perspectives before I can put it to bed. And it's so difficult to do with God. Right, right. Because we just don't even have a complete picture of God anyway. No, and never will. (laughs) Exactly. So there's times when it's just too much for me and I have to put it away for a while. And that's what I've done for quite a while now is I've just put God away. I find that strikes me as healthy. I hope so. I don't always feel healthy. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I it's not, yeah, it's not I agree. what any, you know, I, I can't imagine any mainstream pastor telling you, you know, just take a break from God. Right. No, However, they, no, they were like, no, you need to dive deeper. That's yes. when you double down on your faith. That's when you triple down on your faith. And um, you end up, you know, like the, the poor guy in Brad Jersak's new book where he's just mm-hmm. torn apart from the inside out, you know, and he's just, you know. Well, it's come down to this though. They've, they've taught us that certainty is faith. Right. And it's not, it's the opposite. Right. Faith, faith is not being certain of something. Faith is mystery. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's wrestling every day with something you don't understand and, and knowing that somewhere there's an answer that's faith. Right. Not doubling down on everything that you've learned and saying that's the totality of truth. Right. I find that anymore, I, man, I just have a visceral reaction Mm -hmm. to certitude. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I get really, you know, I, number one, I just, I just trust it entirely. It doesn't strike me as anywhere near intellectually honest. And so, and people who are that cocksure about anything, honestly, it doesn't have to be God. It could be, you could be that certain about, you know, the greatest rock song ever written and you and I are going to tussle, you know, even if we agree, I mean, how can, you know, over something so subjective, but this whole thing of certainty, I, I love, I don't know if you had ever read Pete Enns' book, The Sin of Certainty. Yes. Um, so, I mean, and that's what, that, that was my first sort of foray into, mm-hmm. okay, well, yeah, what I had described as faith all my life is is actually not faith at all. It's a formula we concocted to get God to do stuff that we think he should do. Something we can measure, actually, right? Remember right. those word of faith days where, yes. you know, see, actually what, John, let me, let me go back to a previous thought. For 30 years, you you feel like sometimes you missed out on some things. I feel like you dodged 30 years worth of bullets. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but that 
but that's our perspective. I'm sure he feels like he's missed out. Yeah, but did he did he miss out on the name it and claim it movement of the eighties, oh man? God. What a nightmare! Oh, sweet merciful Lord! I mean, it was all everything was a formula, man. Yes. If this, then this, put this much money in, there was guys that would come to my church and promise us, yeah, a sevenfold or a tenfold yeah. or whatever increase on our on our love offering. And you know, there were times when my wife and I were dirt broke, man. Yeah, and we're scraping up enough money to put in the box because you know he. The man of God has challenged our faith. I think I've asked this question and Nat. I was like, so if, if this if this system was supposed to work, right, where you you give till it hurts, but God will give you back seven times, right? Then why the hell didn't the church just do it? Exactly. Right. Why didn't the church yeah. why didn't the church just take all of the money in their coffers and give it to another church? And then they would have been rewarded seven times. But they don't do it. I asked that question once and got told to shut up. So, um, Andrew <laughs> Farley, you point out a blind spot. <laughs> Andrew Farley, you know, one of the guys that I have a love hate relationship with, but um, in his book "God Without Religion," he makes that point. He says somebody had come to their church and told them to basically tithe their way to prosperity, and he's like, "Okay, then that's exactly what the church should be doing. So go for it, prove it to me." But anyway, I, I didn't mean to got the topic of that, but um, but. And I'm not even sure where I was before I sidetracked myself with, you know, John Dodge and 30 years of weird movements. Well, I mean, I, uh, I kind of have an understanding of where you're coming with, like with there are days where you just doubt that God even exists. So I definitely, there's times where I'll be, I get in my car and I'm driving to work, especially when I was preaching and you, you get that moment where you're like, it's all a scam. This is all fake. And everything in your head tells you that you just have joined another crazy circus and you need to jump ship as soon as possible because it, it, this can't be true. I mean, it's just, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work in your head anymore. Right. Well, part of it is that again, it's an indoctrination system in which we've been taught our entire lives that it's not about this life. It's about the one that comes after. And what that does is it, it disallows us enjoying this one. And so when you get to the point where you question the existence of God, which by the way, somebody told me I would get there and I argued with them and said, that will never be me. Um, <laughs> All right, Peter. <laughs> uh, actually, it was Matthew DiStefano who told me that. And he's, of course, one of my very, very best friends. And I told him, I'm like, I said, I just can't ever see myself getting there. So when I got there, I said to him, you were right. I don't know what to do with this. And right. I still credit him and he brings it up all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but his comment to me was the only way out of this is through it. Right. And, yeah. and so you have to kind of go through this process. And so that's why I've just kind of relaxed into it a little bit. And so on the days when I'm questioning the existence of God, I try to remember that I was taught a certain thing and it's okay for me to relax right now and live the hell out of this life right now. Right. Yeah. And, and trust that God, if there is God, he's good enough that he's made a way for afterwards. Right. You right. know, and, and I know there would be a whole lot of people that would, you know, jump on that. Well, he did make a way and Jesus is the way. And, you, you know, and I know that, but I, I kind of look at it and go, okay, then. <laughs> right. But it's interesting that you say that because if you go back and listen to my conversation with Brad yesterday, mm -hmm. you're going to hear some, some themes. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and one of the things that we talked about yesterday was exactly that. Yeah is that those who have relegated the gospel into whatever happens in the sweet by and by, right? you know, whatever. And, and then, you know, for him, 
whatever hell is, whatever weeping and gnashing of teeth is, it will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth over a life that was wasted. We didn't live. Yeah. That we didn't live. And, and then in, you know, in true Brad fashion and obviously scriptural fashion, and then what? And then he'll wipe away every tear and then we move on to the next thing. Um, whatever that is. And I so hope that's true. I so hope that's true. I so hope that's true. And, and so for Brad, you know, when he says that, you know, his faith is, he stopped saying that he was hopeful because it sounded wishy-washy and like, as though he had a, <laughs> like, it's just something I, you know, I sort of pie in the sky. He goes, well, my hope is, is, is in a person right. and my hope has a name and his name is Jesus. And, and what that means for him, and I think what it means for me too, is that I don't have to know all those answers. Right. You know, I have got to learn to be okay with, I don't know, as an, as a response. And it's a hard thing to, to get used to. It is a hard thing, you know, especially for someone like you, I know who's very analytical yes. and, you know, needs to examine everything. Um, how do you get comfortable with, eh, I I'm don't not. know. I'm not. I can honestly <laughs> tell you that sitting here right now, I literally feel emotion in my throat and tears in my mm. eyes because this has been my reality for the last few days. Mm. What if, what if yeah. I'm, I don't have it together? What if? And so I find myself back in that place sometimes. And it usually coincides with when life is very difficult for one reason or another. And, you know, you want to go back to that deus ex machina idea of if I just <laughs> do the right thing, then God will bless. You want to go back to that, what's familiar because it's comforting. And then I think where the emotion comes in is then the logical side of my brain goes, but you know, that's not true. And so what are you left with? I don't know. That's why I feel all this emotion. I don't know. And I don't, I'm not comfortable here. <laughs> it's a tough place to be. Right. For a little while, um, I really leaned into this mystery thing a little bit. Uh, Richard Rohr was a good resource who likes to say things like, God is not a mystery we can't understand. He's a mystery we can endlessly understand, right. <laughs> which is pithy and great. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, uh, you know, someone like Merton, you know, who <laughs> writes a lot, a lot of really great stuff. And I love Merton deeply, but there's sometimes when I read it and I go, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and so what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and? give me the rubber meets the road <laughs> thing. Give me the, you know, give me the thing that I, what do I do when, and I've, I'm sure both of you have had this experience when you wake up in the middle of the night, terrified. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. Like, maybe God's a giant sheep. And I've had lamb chops my whole life. But no, I'm, that's being silly. I think but, if God um, was anything, he'd be a dog. Yes, that's my yes. take on it. I, I see God and my dog way more than any Us all the most, time. Most, yeah. most humans. All I mean, yeah. But, um, but I know that for my wife and I, um, and you were, you were, present with us, not physically, but emotionally when our daughter got very sick. Yes. And then, so in speaking with my wife this morning, um, I, I'm like, if you had to put a, if you had to put a finger on it, you know, that moment where something broke, it was that. Oh, I'm sure. You know, it was, it was, it was the fact that, you know, up, you know, she was tw 19 when this happened. Uh -huh. So we'd been married all these years. We'd had these fantastic kids. Um, everything was going swimmingly. And we seemed and felt impervious to tragedy. Right. And then the giant FU. Yep. Of an inexplicable, unpredictable thing. Yeah. And then God does not come through. Right. In the way that you expect him or want or hope that he will. Right. So um, she didn't die. Uh, I, I, I made the 
eternal blunder of, of talking to a friend of mine once who I apparently didn't know as well as I thought I did and, <laughs> and telling her that, um, and I said something like, oh, there's just nothing worse than your, your child being in bed in a hospital and you can't help her. And she's like, yes, there is. She said, try burying one. Mm. And I found out she'd lost a child. Aww. And I was like, and there was a perspective shift. Sure. You know what I mean? Of like, okay, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop blaming God for all this. You know, I'm going to talk to John and I going to talk to, to, to Thomas Ord next week, mm. um, who had a lot to do with how I consider the ways in which God does or doesn't interact with the world. I wish I'd had that then. Yeah. Because there was a lot of begging and pleading and just trying to get God to move. What do I have to do? How good do I have to be? Oh, yeah. I'll do whatever it takes. I've been there. I've done that too for my child. So I was in the middle of my deconstruction. I didn't remember what stage I was at. I didn't put names to it, but my wife was just still sort of tolerating it. And then there was this thing of, I don't even know how to pray. Like these things that have been don't. bedrock. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, that's still the hardest thing for me. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> So she's like, what do I pray for? How do I pray? How do, what do I expect God to do? You know this, and you, you mentioned that Deus Ex Machina thing. Mm -hmm. I, what we expect is God to swoop in and save the day. Right. And, and what we have to learn to live with is that more often than not, he doesn't do that, you know? And so yeah. I didn't know if there was something like that for you. That was a moment where, you know, something that you trusted. Okay. I believe you. And, yeah. you know, I, to me, when, of course, this goes back into early childhood, but I came from such an ugly family dynamic and there was so much abuse of all kinds. I remember as a small child believing God hated me for some reason, mm. because the, why would he let this happen? Why would I be subject to this if it, you know, I was a good girl. I went to Sunday school every week. I prayed. I listened to my parents. I did everything I was supposed to. And yet all this ugliness was happening. So I must have displeased God in some way. So why wouldn't he fix it? And then, of course, that idea carried into adulthood. And so where you're constantly striving to be good enough, you're constantly striving to hit the mark that you're not even sure what that is. But you you just so desperately need God to come through. And you know, it's, it's funny talking about praying because I, I haven't been able to do that in a very long time. But the other night I went to bed and I remember I laid there and I had this overwhelming feeling of, and I actually said it out loud. I'm like, God, are you really there? And there's no answer. There's just not. I, you know, that's why I said, so on any given day, do I believe that God is there? I don't know. You know, because I would really like it if God would write on the wall for me. <laughs> right, me too. <laughs> or if he would right. just audibly say, yeah, I'm right here. That would be great. If he would just That's show up in a piece experience. of, just in a piece of toast. <laughs> something. <laughs> give, give me something, man. Yeah. Give me, yeah. I, I, man, I can so resonate. I know John can. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, similar story to, to Nat's is uh, I had my, my middle child um, was born with a disorder um, that required mm -hmm. multiple surgeries. Uh, at a very young age. Uh, so my son was born with craniosynostosis, which is the fusing of the, of the bones in his skull, uh, which is basically brain surgery at, a, at, at eight months. But I wasn't, I wasn't in any faith at that time. But I can tell mm -hmm. you, I had been indoctrinated so much in the first 18, 19 years of my life on that, you know, if you expect God to show up, you need to do your part. Right. So... I did the whole karma bullshit and I 
I'm at a four-way stop and I let everybody go ahead of me, right? Because I'm building up my points. Uh, I I go up I go up to the, the I'm door. I'm in control. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not I, a nice driver. So. Uh, these are things He's I, out there flipping yeah. the bird. Everybody's. <laughs> these are things I normally wouldn't do, right? I was like, no, it's my turn. I'm going, or you know, go mm-hmm. up to the sto- door at a store, and I'm opening it and letting people go in. I'm like, hey, I just got to build up these points. I got to build up right. these good boy points, right? So at some <laughs> point, God will show up and protect my son during all these surgeries, and I'm not even in any faith at this time. But I'm thinking, right. I, I, I have to, I have to fix this, and. uh like we said, 30 years out of the church, 30 years out of faith. But, you know, I did the same thing that you, you know, I question if there's a God all the time, but I did the same right. thing with the Bible uh, about yeah. a year, <laughs> a year and a half ago. Well, actually almost a year ago now, because I did it for Lent. I said, you know, jokingly, I said, I'm going to give up the Bible for Lent. Yeah. Because I had found out that I, I was really good at using it to bash other people, which is exactly what they did to me. Right. But I right. became very, very good at finding those verses to show them how they were wrong. Right. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to not, I'm not even going to pick it up. I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to pull it out and pull out that verse to hammer somebody down with it. And that turned into, uh, I'm not sure I even know how to read it anymore. Yeah. Well, we've been taught to use it very irresponsibly. I, you know, one of the things that, that I have often made comments about, which again, will get me into a lot of trouble is <laughs> how many people that are standing behind a pulpit have any kind of formal training in languages or the history and context of, you know, the, the Bible and the writers and, and all of that stuff. Very few. They're really just doing like what you said. They're, they're reading the Bible from their, from, through their lens of understanding and they're expounding on that, which is fine. If you're told, you take this with a grain of salt, this is just my understanding, but that's not what we're told. We're right. told this is, this is truth. And, and so, yeah, there's a point now I don't pick up the Bible because honestly, I don't trust myself with the Bible. And, you know, I remember Nat, you know, you bring up all the, the learning with Michael Harden and everything, because there was that time when I started reading every book and I was diving into all of that. I even, uh, uh, another good friend of mine, Daniel started teaching me Hebrew. I was learning Hebrew so that I would be able to read, you know, the original language. And all of a sudden I realized I, I don't have the bandwidth for this. I just don't. And so I'm going to hold that very loosely because I don't know that I'm able to be responsible enough with that information. And I don't want to hurt somebody else with that information. You know, like, just like John said, I used to do the same thing. We all did, you know, we had to prove our point. And so I kind of look at it now as there's wisdom there, but I, again, the totality of truth, I don't know. Certainly not through my understanding. I can tell you that. (laughs) I, I would, I would push back on anybody who thinks that, any any text can contain the totality of yeah, truth. Exactly, it's just that's not just, possible. That's that's lunacy. Yeah, you know, and that's that's bibliolatry if you want to call it oh, that. For whatever. Sure. You, I mean, it is whatever we've labeled it. We've uh, my uh, my friend Todd, who's my associate pastor, actually, mm-hmm. we talk about this all the time. You know, this this notion, you know, the Chicago inerrancy system or a statement of nineteen seventy eight or whatever it was, and and that point at which we we literally elevated the Bible mm-hmm. to the fourth person of the Trinity. Not to, and matter of fact, we've actually edged out the Holy Spirit pretty much <laughs> in, in, and said Father, Son, Holy Bible, because yeah. I, the, the Holy Spirit's just a kooky thing I can't get my head around, but I can get my head <laughs> around this text. Um, I stood in front of my church and I do this regularly and I, I say exactly what you said. This is my perspective. Right. 
this is where I'm at right now. I might come back to this text in a year and read this completely differently. That's right. Um, so please, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any authority. Right. I, the, the, I have, I have an obligation, I think, or, or at least I have, I, I feel compelled to share with you where I'm at. Right. And, and you can come along or you can not, and that's fine. But, um, I wanted to ask you about psychology. Mm, oh boy. <laughs> because that's your, because that's your, that's your bellywick. I remember, I remember one of the things that Michael taught me and, you know, a lot of it was good and I still hold on to it. But, um, one of the things that Michael was fond of saying was that, you know, your theology has to have a robust anthropology sure, in order to have any kind of, you know, we have so much of our, of our theology divorced from any kind of anthropology, but likewise, what do you think about a robust psychology? I I 100% believe we have to, there's nothing that we do or say or experience that is not wrapped up in our psychology. I mean, psychology is as simple as understanding that each one of us is viewing life through a lens of our past. And we have to accept that and understand it. If so, like, if if I'm going to read the scriptures, like we were just talking about, I'm going to read it through that lens that I've always had. And that's why I won't accept anybody else's interpretation. Well, we're actually using psychology there. Okay. We are using cognitive dissonance you know, or confirmation bias. There's all these things that we're doing from a psychological perspective that we just do without even understanding that's what's happening. And so that was part of what I wrote about as well, is there's all these processes going on in our quest to understand and to change and to grow. Do you feel like um, on some level the church has weaponized some of this stuff? Yeah, I again, for sure they have, because let's let's look at examples of people that have bipolar or, you know, anything, a lot of different psychological maladies, if you will, that we have demonized quite literally right, mm-hmm. and said, yeah. you're not really suffering from depression. You have a spirit of depression. Oh, dear God. Well, that's Help irresponsible. Yeah. It's just flat out irresponsible. And I was told that for years and years and years. And I can't tell you the number of times I fasted and prayed and had people, you know, pray through my house and everything because I just needed to get rid of the spirit of depression. Well, the reality is I have depression. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have to learn to manage that. And I have to quit apologizing for it because it's a part of who I am. Right. And I know there's a lot of people that would say, oh, but see, you're identifying there. Well, yeah, because that's my experience on a daily basis. And so I have to identify there and and understand how to live there. Right. You know, I have a tattoo on my arm that says I'm stronger because I'm broken. Right. I know a lot of people have a problem with that. I don't give a shit if you have a problem with that. (laughs) I just don't. Because you know what? I recognize that being depressed is something that isn't healthy for me, but I can't change it. And I have to be stronger every day because of that. And so I think that we have to normalize problems that people have had on a psychological basis that we have demonized quite literally in the church. And we oh, have to say, it's okay for you to recover here. It's okay for you to receive therapy or help. Or medication if that's what you need. Or, you know, I, I remember, you know, people being told that they just, and a matter of fact, this happened not too very long ago, where a friend of mine confided to me that a pastor that she had been seeing had, had basically told her to pray herself out of her depression. Yeah. And she had enough presence of mind and enough chutzpah Mm -hmm. to tell him to go pound sand. Yeah. And she never, she never (laughs) went back. But for everyone like that, there's 30 or 40 who take what that person says as, I mean, there's hundreds who say, oh, okay, maybe I, okay, I just, I just feel like the, like the, like the church traffics and things. And when I say the church, I mean the church writ large, you know, Um, I mean that as a generic sort of catch all, but as an institution has trafficked in things that have actually led to more cognitive dissonance. Sure. Yeah. That have and led damage. to more 
identity crises that have led to all kinds of mental health issues and then prop themselves up as those who could help solve the problems they helped to create. Well, one of my, one of my, another one of my areas where I get in trouble because I'm pretty vocal about the idea that uh, I know there's a thing about Christian counseling. I get that. I find it somewhat irresponsible for somebody who has no psychological training whatsoever to sit down and try and help somebody psychologically and be do so because they're a pastor. Yeah, you are being super, that. super tactful. <laughs> I try. Call it, I try. Call, call it what it is, Michelle. It's bullshit. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but in all honesty, I had this experience because as I said, I've had depression since I was a young kid. And, yeah. and so I had it all this time in the church. And there was a time where I reached a point where I, I was at a crisis point. Yeah. And I went to a doctor and I said, here's where I am. I went to a medical doctor, said, here's where I am. They said, you know, you're suffering from depression and you should really go on antidepressants for a while. Well, that's a no-go in the church. That's a lack right. of faith. But I did it. Right. And I told nobody. I didn't even tell my husband. I told mm. nobody because I thought this is a serious breach of my faith, but I'm so desperate for help right now. Right. That I will do it. And so I did. I went on these pills and for a while I felt better because it it leveled everything. Sure. sure. Then after a while I realized I wasn't feeling anything and I didn't like that. And then I blamed that on the fact that I had done this and for you know, I was being punished. Right. Because I had done this, it was a breach of my faith. I was being dishonest. So I decided I'm coming off these pills and I just quit them cold turkey. Wow. It's very, very dangerous. Uh, And I stumbled into a dark hole where I really thought I'm going to end it. I'm going to be done. I can't live like this. It it was horrifying. And I had to go to my husband and tell him, this is what I've done. We went back to a medical doctor and they said, you cannot ever, ever stop taking that like that. You have to wean yourself off. So we had to go back on it. Now I had to say this in front of people. And at the time I was told, if we just pray hard enough, you can come off this medication. And uh, So I did. I came off medication because I still fully believed it was a breach of my faith. And so I did it correctly. I came off of it correctly, which was a horrifying experience in and of itself. But I still was not given any answers. I still was just told it's a faith issue. And I suffered with that for a long time. Uh, In all honesty, I just started therapy a few months ago and working through some trauma from my childhood and the anxiety and depression that that has created. And I'm finding that I'm more at peace now outside of the church dealing with this than I ever was in the church believing God was going to magically fix me. Well, and it, it, it breaks my heart because I don't understand. I'll never understand the divide. No, I'll never understand what makes pastors think they're qualified to give medical advice to people ever. And I don't know whatever, I don't understand what prevents them from working hand in glove with those who do. I don't either. And saying, listen, there is a spiritual component to this. I won't dismiss that. There, no, there might be course. a spiritual, but there there also might be a, a, a health component. So physical fitness probably comes into play. The ways in which you change your diet. Absolutely. We can approach this from all this, you know, from a very holistic sense. And right. the pastor or counselor or whatever, I believe can be an integral part of that. Right. But when we sat down to plant this church, I have my six or eight people that, that helped plant this with me. And the first thing I told them was, we would engage the services of mental health professionals Good. for anybody who who we are. We have to be honest and say, no, this is outside of my el- right. realm of expertise. Right. And I am not giving advice. I, if you came to me with a with a with a 
a lump on on a part of you, I wouldn't go. Well, let me let me let me biopsy that in faith, exactly, <laughs> uh, brother. It's not cancer. You're good to go, man. Nobody would accept that as anything other than utter lunacy. And yet, for mental health issues, we all mm-hmm. get to play doctor right. and go. Well, you know, so to be it's fair, silly. It does happen with physical stuff, though, too. Now I know it, it does. does. I'm sorry. I, I was given I was given too much credit. <laughs> yeah, because my oldest son, my oldest son has epilepsy, and for years we thought it was just a demonic thing. Oh my you goodness! You know, and we uh, have to pray it away. Yeah. He has to fast, and then we even went back. Uh, it was a generational curse. We have to go back and break a generational curse. Oh man! And Help me, Jesus. We, I'm embarrassed to, by this stuff because we actually went back and did these. I'm like not even kidding, like incantation kind of stuff. Like if you just read this stuff and your whole family doesn't, you know, it'll magically be better. Well, that's not true. He still has epilepsy. <laughs> The same people would mock you if you said you're going to go home and burn sage. Exactly. So it's just whatever we're comfortable with. Witchcraft? No, it's just your form of witchcraft (laughs) over my form of witchcraft. Come on, man. Uh, Whatever incantation or shibboleth we utter that's going to get God to move. That's a good word. I love that word. (laughs) See, I I learned a few things along the way. But But that's what I'm saying. I, I just don't think that as a church you can come along and say, we have all the answers. You don't. You're limited by your own inexperience and your own limited knowledge. And even and even saying, well, Jesus is the answer begs more questions than it provides sure. answers. Okay, well, right. which, which Jesus, you know? Yeah, exactly. See, and I even wrote about that. I was like, it's one thing to say that Jesus is the answer for things, but don't we then have to deconstruct Jesus? Because we all have Are we talking Rambo Jesus? Jesus, American Jesus? We talking about, exactly. you know, social justice warrior exactly. Jesus? We talking... You know, whatever agenda has hijacked (laughs) Jesus today. Because we've all made him in our image. (laughs) Of course we have, you know. My personal favorite is is Jeff Goldblum Jesus. Oh, oh, I haven't seen this one. (laughs) Because, oh, he's, uh, I'm just making him up on the spot. I'm thinking that he would be sort of wryly witty, but self-deprecating, you know, you know, a little bit of, you know, we thought so long about, uh, you know, whether... We could do this that we never stop to think if if we should. <laughs> he he would stutter a little bit, but it would be stylistic. It'd be great. Um, so yeah, Jeff, I'm 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 putting my money on Jeff Goldblum, Jesus. Um, All right, that's good. I'm gonna. But go uh, with that but one there's too. there's a severe lack of humility in the church, and that's so much of so much of that has in my mind anyway to do with this weird thing we've created of celebrity in the church. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, you know how, how, how tantalizing it can be to seek a platform and look for, oh, and yeah. even if it's, even if it's a small one, but it's a still a, you know, and so we've, we've created these weird icons, you know, and what we need are iconoclasts, you know, who will come and just bash yeah. that. So before I forget to ask you, I called you a, uh, what did I call you? A basher of the patriarchy or a smasher? Of the- I don't know. You, you gave me quite a list there. I'm going to have a hard time living up to. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I do want to get your, because you have a unique take on on a lot of this from, from your perspective. But what has been, you know, some of your challenges coming at, coming at this as a theologian, as a, as a psychologist, you know, in a largely white male dominated patriarchal world? I mean, how, how does that or does it even compute? Yeah, I really have very little patience for the patriarchal crap. I, I don't believe God is interested in our genitals as far as Amen. what we're qualified to do or not to do. I think that's, again, bullshit. And so as soon as somebody starts putting those limitations on, I'm done in the conversation because I, I, I'm i not going to convince them and I'm just not interested in their in 
their input anymore. I, I feel like that we have put these gender norms on people traditionally and, and culturally for years and years and years. And, and so we've decided now who can and cannot do what based on those qualifications. And that's really limiting to the person because each one of us is unique and brings different unique talents and gifts to the table. And why shouldn't we be allowed to explore those or use those, especially to help other people just because of what is or is right. not between our legs. I just don't understand <laughs> how that's a qualification. I just cannot make that a qualification. It's, it's such a little thing. Oh, wait a minute. That was, <laughs> oh, that, 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 that came out exactly, no, that's exactly I how I intended it. So. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't have a lot of patience for that. I have, however, experienced that across the board. As, as a woman, you just automatically experience those things. Told that you're not, you know, you're not qualified to preach or to teach because you're a woman. Um, even in the business world, I have had to learn to work around people's perceptions. And, 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 you know, I have stories over and over where I've worked with male CPAs and the client will always defer to them mm. as opposed to me. And I can tell you not one time has that person been more educated than me, more experienced than me. And quite honestly, the few times that I can think of where this has actually come up, they were wrong and I was right. So, but you can't convince people of that. So you have to do this workaround. So as a woman, you're constantly trying to work around somebody else's perception, Yeah, you know, and, and the only way I can see that being any worse is being a woman of color. Mm. I really feel like that's an even bigger uh, denigration against somebody, right? you know, that they're not considered equal or as good as. And uh, it's it's a difficult challenge, and it, it's quite honestly one that pisses me off pretty regularly. So, well, <laughs> again, that's where I get mouthy and I get in trouble. So, <laughs> how how old were you when you joined the Marine Corps? I was. Let me see. I celebrated my birthday in boot camp, and I turned. I think I turned twenty in boot camp. So you've been doing this since forever. Smashing the Patriot, being, being, <laughs> I mean, oh, it, I was only in the Marine Corps four years. Come on. But. <laughs> uh, yeah. But once a Marine, always a Marine. Always a Marine. I mean, yeah, Semper Fi, you're, uh, oh, yeah. aren't you, aren't you a rifleman first, right? Yeah. It's tattooed on my body. I still yeah. get comments on it in the gym. So, a lot, of, Especially now here, I'm in Tennessee now. So a lot of people here are very, very keyed into military. Well, oh and, yeah. Well, listen, yeah, I was, so, I was in the Air Force. So yeah, I, know I know all about the Marine Corps. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, but I would uh, stop it. Um, as my, all of my all of my Marine buddies, we you know we razz each other all the time, so they always called it the Chair Force. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, hey, Chair Force, and I'm like, okay. It's well, you a- know, I spent time on Lackland Air Force Base. Yeah, me too. Which sadly. is of course where boot camp yeah. is for Air Force. And I remember going to the club on the weekends, and the and the recruits from Air Force were in the club, and I was like, what the hell is this? It, it was, it, <laughs> what do you mean you get to go to the club? Why, while do, you're in why do you think camp? I joined the Air Force, man? <laughs> That was like, I, I literally searched out the branch of service with the least physical go. requirements. See, I was the opposite because I was bodybuilding before I went in and it no. was like, no, who's got the, the most stringent requirements? I said, I said, uh, what's the, what's the arm, what's the armed service that's least likely to send me off to get shot? And the Air Force sends its officers to, to fight wars. So well, there you so, go. Anyway, it, Good it, choice. But, um, but I do know that um, I, I, I was in the intel business. So mm. I did 12 years in the Air Force as a linguist, and um, mm. I was always joint service, always. Every, every intel operation just about us. And so I spent a lot of time with Marines and sailor, uh, sailors and airmen and um, soldiers. And I had a special level of respect for female Marines. There's not a whole lot of just, us, or there's, well, there's more not, now than there used but to be. But, man, they were just the consummate badasses. 
You know, I mean, they just and they and partly because they had to be, you know, they had yeah. more to prove than anybody else. They had, you know, yeah. so lots of lots of respect for you for that. Oh, um, thank you. But I'm curious and I'm always interested in how that how that kind of stuff informs, you know, the way that you see the world. And that's that's really why we wanted to have you on oh. was to talk about your perspective and that never mind the fact that I just I just love you. And uh, <laughs> well, you're just you. a I you're just a quality <laughs> human being. And uh, oh well, thank you. That's, that, uh, again, that's a lot to live up to. <laughs> not, <laughs> on any given day, that may or may I, not be I, true. I think I've set the bar low at just quality. I didn't know. Okay, <laughs> but again, I still think that's kind of a <laughs> yeah. reach on some days. Uh, so. <laughs> you know what else? You know, you know what else? Your proof of for me, Michelle, is that real, actual friendships on some level can develop on social media. I agree. Yeah. Actually, some of the very best friends that I have, I've it's come through Facebook. Anyone who would poo poo that to me would have to, to, I've traveled out of my way to meet people like you, yep, me too. you know, a, a big reason that I went to that conference yeah. in Kansas city was I knew you yeah. would be there. And I'm like, oh, well, well, it's not you. just Michael and it's that not just, thing for me it, too. yeah. I'm like, well, Brad and you know, Brad's going to be there and Brian Zahn's going to be there and whatever, but James is going to be there. And, exactly. and Michelle's going to be there and Tommy's going to be there and all these guys that we, yeah. that we had been talking okay. online. And what, what, what delighted me and still does to this day is that y'all were exactly who you were, who what I expected. Like, okay. I think I even remember you saying that. Yeah, then. I'm like, I hope that these people are who I think they are. And then when we all met and hung, it was like this instant camaraderie of, Hey, let's just mm-hmm. have a beer and talk about whatever. Yeah. And uh, that was one of, it's one of my favorite memories oh, of that. Mine so. too. It was, a, it was a ton of fun. The conference, so. I don't even remember the much of the conference. I, I just remember that time together. I, I, I recorded some of it and I, yeah. yeah, I'm like you, I'm like, I remember meeting Carol Wimmer, you know, yes. who was, yes. and is awesome. And I remember meeting yes. Rob from Oklahoma and, um, Absolutely. remember, so I, and those are people that I still maintain contact with. And, yeah, um, so I think that's a, that's an awesome thing. And I know John feels I similarly. I, keep- I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, obviously with the pandemic and everything going on, we can't go and hang out with yeah. people as much as we'd like to. But I can honestly say that some of the people on Facebook and other uh, social medias have been the people who have reached out to me more mm. than people who could get in their car and be at my house in five minutes. Exactly. Uh, they've been concerned, you know, with things that, you know, that have been going on. Uh, they reach out and maybe there's a level of where you can, you can detach a little bit so you can feel a bit more comfortable, but, but it's also means they can detach, right? They could, they could disappear and we wouldn't know. And uh, some of the closest and, and best connections I have are through, through Facebook. So I, I am, I mean, Nat and I decided to do this podcast came from the people we have met on Facebook. I would never, a year ago, this wasn't even on my radar. Yeah doing right, something like this, right. uh, reaching out to people like you and getting to have this conversation, which is, I mean, it's just blowing my mind. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's amazing what we can do. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to more of it. I tell you what I'm looking forward to, Michelle. What's that? I want to read your book. Uh, hopefully it's coming out soon. I hope. And I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm a little upset with myself that I didn't get in on your book launch team. So I could have had a sneak, had a sneak peek. Oh, that's all right. I'll send you the PDF if you want it. But uh, yeah, I do because I, I really want you. What's, what's the title of the book, by the way? Into the Gray. Into the Gray. Oh, yeah. Man, see, even a great title. <laughs> what a good title. Yeah, it's it just really is very indicative. I mean, you know, it's kind of a play on psychology to gray matter and, you know, into the yeah, gray. Yeah, yeah. Be- the double or triple entendre. Yeah, because that's what deconstruction is. It's no longer black or white. You are living in a world of gray. So it's. But you're also, I think you're inviting people into, and I haven't even read the book, but I bet you, I, I bet you, you do this. 
you're inviting people into a a, a realm that the church has tr- traditionally shied away from, mm. um, and that's the that's the mind. Yeah, I mean, they really want you to make heart decisions all the time. Right. I'd rather I'd rather coerce you into an emotional response right. because if I evoke, you know, a, 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 an intellectual thought, then there's the there's the there's the opportunity you might start to question what I have to say. So that's dangerous, right? Yeah, they want you to make a heart decision, but they want to make you they want you to make their heart decision because your heart your heart is deceitful above all things. Right? Right. Only the person behind the pulpit. Only the person <laughs> right. behind the but pulpit like, has the true heart and the true <laughs> understanding. And yeah, they, they take intellect out of it. Right. But but that's the manipulation, right? Is the eliciting of that response is I'm eliciting a particular response. You know, and John and I talked about this a bunch. We both grew up playing music and I was a worship leader in church mm-hmm. for years. And whether I did it on purpose or subconsciously or whatever, I was always, I'm trying to elicit a response from somebody and I'm gauging my level of success, um, in, in, in my, either my ability to or my failure to elicit that response from people. So we play the sad song. We play the slow song. <laughs> we remind you that you killed Jesus. Yes. I, I expect tears. I better see some people on their knees. Right? Well, you can you can manipulate mood with music by going to a minor key. As soon as you oh, go to a minor 100%. key, you've got people emotionally keyed in because it, it plays in your brain that way. Nigel Tufnell in Spinal Tap told us that, that D minor was the saddest of all keys. Mm-hmm. People hear it and they instantly weep. I'll tell you, as because I was a worship leader for years, when when we would play songs with that minor key, it, it for me personally, it became deeply emotional. And of course, that is where, again, that goes back to the mimetic, but that is where you draw people in and then the response becomes the expected response. Right. And so it just further, you know, furthers this idea. And so, yeah, it's very manipulative. You can be very manipulative with worship. Right. And and so into the gray then is an invitation into mystery. Sure. Somewhat an invitation into something that's less certain, yeah. but also an invitation into the cerebral. Correct. And into understanding our own minds. Right. Um, I, I always found it funny that the Bible tells us, you know, Paul tells us to renew our minds. And yet we can be some of the most anti-intellectual people in the world. Yeah, it's unfortunate. <laughs> we do ourselves a disservice. <laughs> I was I was hardcore going to go to seminary right out of high school and was talked out of it by all of my well-meaning preachers and pastors because <laughs> they called it cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You don't want to go to, that's where you people, that's where faith goes to die. That's where you lose your faith. I was told the same thing about education in, in general. Like the more educated you are, the, the more you're likely to lose your faith. You know, and now I'm working on the seventh degree now and I'm like, maybe they're right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's the same things that they use though to not yeah. teach women in certain right, parts of the world. Right. Like we don't want to arm them with yeah. More information. Exactly. So I, I, man, I can't wait. I, I haven't read it and I already love it's, it. I, I've been very pleased with the feedback I've gotten from the people that have endorsed it. Brad was one of them that endorsed it. And, and he had a very nice thing to say. I actually included an endorsement for my daughter because she wrote something beautiful and nobody knows who my daughter is, but <laughs> she's going to be on my endorsement list because it was beautiful because they all brought it back to the fact that I, I didn't leave it where you had any kind of conclusion because Mm. there is no conclusion in deconstruction. I know people don't want to hear that, but there's just not. Well, no, there's just the next deconstruction, isn't there? That's right. That's right. I remember uh, Phyllis Tickle. You ever read Phyllis Tickle? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, she, she, she had this notion that every 500 years or so the church reforms. Yes, that's right. You know, and then so, um, she was part of the big emergent church movement, whatever that was, mm-hmm. or has ceased to be. But, but I, but I, I felt that way about deconstruction, yeah. you know, as though those who feel like, you know, okay, <laughs> I deacon, I did it. I'm done I'm with done. it. <laughs> you know, yeah, if only it worked that way, it just doesn't. You just haven't asked the right question yet. Because the next one that's really going to get you into trouble is ugh, that's coming down the pike, you know. Yeah, pretty much. So, and I'm, I'm I'm at a point now where I'm looking forward to that, you know. I I, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe maybe I'm a little more cavalier about the whole thing than some people. I, I don't know. I'm I'm learning to hold things pretty loosely, and and say, well, okay, if that's the next thing that gets on the chopping block, then we'll 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 deal with that when the time comes. But right. Well, that's that's what it is. It's an ongoing process. You don't yeah. ever stop deconstructing. And and so that's where, again, I, not throwing shade at anybody because I know several people that do this. They've put together, you know, uh, courses and whatnot on how to deconstruct and then how to reconstruct. And I'm like, really? You're, you're literally putting requirements on this process that's so very individual. Yeah. And, and I don't I don't jive with that. Well, and I think it, it tries to contain it. It does. Yeah. And tries to make it. How how it could be predictable? I don't know. I don't know either. You know, so so somehow we're trying to say, take something that is at its heart individual and mm-hmm. hard to even explain and describe. You know, I think most people fall into it. Yeah. I don't know that most people intentionally. No, you know, they find that, themselves in the middle of it. Go, oh, right. what the hell is this? I, I literally wrote about that as well. The idea that nobody goes seeking this out; it finds you. Yeah. And it usually overwhelms you. You don't want it. Right. And you just can't stop the questions anymore. Right. So you either take the one pill that sends you back into the matrix and you knowingly right. live the lie. Right. And say, fine, I know right. the stake isn't real, but I don't care. Or you take the plunge and you, you wake up in the real world, even if it's scary as hell. Throughout the book, I, I actually liken it to the metamorphosis uh, mm-hmm. that a Kafka? butterfly. Yeah. Care. Well, I, Kafka's in my book. Yes, I love Kafka. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, Greg, uh, Gregor. How yeah, do you say Gregor. His name? He's he's in my book. Okay, because it it spoke to me on such a level of what deconstruction looks like that mm. that subtle change that begins to happen, and it is less about him and more about the reaction of the people around him. Right, because he seems fine with it. Yeah, he. I mean, he accepts it and rolls with it. It's the reaction of the people around him that is very telling. Right. And, and that was my experience, of course. But the other thing that I referenced throughout the book is the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly. Mm. Because the caterpillar has within it everything it needs for this metamorphosis, but it's at its own timing. Right. And if it doesn't go through this metamorphosis, it dies. Right. But it's through this metamorphosis that it becomes something else. And so that is kind of what I've likened this whole process to, to the point where it's tattooed on my arm. Wow. Um, the... The chrysalis, the the caterpillar, the butterflies, the whole story is tattooed on my arm because it was it was that real to me what this process looked like. Amazing. Yeah, it's. I hope it's going to resonate. I, so far, the feedback I've got that is it has resonated with those that have read it. So. Well, it needs to, and we'll do our our small part to promote the heck oh, out of it. You. So I can't I wait to that. I can't wait to see it. 
I don't know if you have much of a social media presence these days, but people can, I'm sure, find you on Facebook. And I'm on Facebook. If you <laughs> if you want to know all my bodybuilding stuff, I'm on Instagram. Oh, there you go. Instagram. <laughs> strictly see, all bodybuilding though. <laughs> oh, see, there's a whole Michelle. You are a you are a like a, like you're an onion, and I peel back layers, and I go, oh, yeah. I 100% meant to talk to you about that. Eh. You know what that means, right? What's that? We get to have you back. Oh, <laughs> just to talk about that. I don't know. If sure. Oh, we've got. Um, but if you go to Michelle's Facebook stuff, do not troll her. She will not tolerate I'm not, it. Yeah, I'm not real patient with that these days. I do. I have a few Facebook stalkers that mm. I ignore. Well, <laughs> you will be shown the, the left foot of fellowship. Yeah. Well, I just tend to not engage and then hope they go away. But yeah, I, I won't argue anymore. <laughs> it's so, not worth it, right? It's just not. I don't have the time in my day for it, to be honest. You said you, you use the word bandwidth. I don't have the bandwidth yeah, for it, man. I, I, I just freeze up and go. <laughs> you know, yep. my- I, I don't know. I'll be honest and say if you catch me on the right day and it's just been a pissy enough day, <laughs> there's a good chance I might snap back. Um, it, that'll happen occasionally. But that's not an argue. That's just a clap back. Like, uh-uh. that's, that's just me. I, I'll, give you back something. I'll just give you something <laughs> back and then I'll block you. So. Yeah. yeah, I had somebody not too long ago say that I, I didn't take um, uh, advice well. And I said, well, have you just considered I'm oh. not interested in your advice? Oh, <laughs> I mean, you don't yeah. know me from Adam. I, I take advice from lots of people. I pay a lot of professional people for my life, right. <laughs> from right. coaches to therapists to nutritionists. Right. I pay a lot of people for their opinion. I'm just right. not interested in yours. <laughs> so some, some random dude on Facebook, you're supposed to give oh, equal time to Adam. Shit. Oh, random chick. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. These people on Facebook. All right. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I, I've kind of just gotten used to that. So most times I just don't engage, but every now and then I will. But yeah, I'm like you. Sometimes I do that just to remind myself why I don't do that. Yeah. It's like, exactly okay. You're like, oh, this is too much effort. Like, like I, I, I legit stop talking about anything political on Facebook. Oh, my God. I avoid that. I will tell you, I, this is a guilty little secret. I have a few people that were friends in the past that I still go look at their page like every few days just because of all their political bullshit. <laughs> it's kind of an entertainment for me. I'm like, nope, that didn't happen. Nope, that didn't happen. Have you started trolling Tucker Carlson yet? Oh, God, no. <laughs> oh, one of my friends took one of my bodybuilding video, videos the other day and put it out on Facebook and said, I want to introduce Michelle to Tucker Carlson because <laughs> I was former military and I'm a bodybuilder. I'm like, I wouldn't have the time in my day for that dumbass. No. It, <laughs> wouldn't, it wouldn't take you long, huh? It'd be- <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just, I just don't have the time for that kind of stupidity. So, <laughs> No, I just want to remind everybody that you, you also have two podcasts that you do. Right. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I have bookish. The canon continues, which is kind of on hiatus right now. My life got a little overwhelming and uh, I went to the publisher and, and pro- apologized profusely. And he's like, Michelle, it's cool. Let's take a little break. And I said, okay. So I'm kind of on hiatus for that one. And then I have a second podcast called mental uh, with my co-host Seth Showalter, who is a mental health professional. And uh, we actually talk through a lot of different stuff, mental health. And it's a, it's a growing, he's very excited. He's a numbers guy in that aspect. And yeah. so he's like, we have this many viewers now or this many downloads and this many people in our Facebook group. And I'm like, I'm excited for you. I don't care. <laughs> I'm, okay, sure. You show up and talk, right? I show up and talk. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, he does all of that, but that it's a good, it is a very good podcast. We, I think it's a lot of good information on the good. mental health stuff. So well, good. Well, so those two are out there. 
hopefully some folks will come check you out. I really appreciate your time. Oh, um, I'm I'll, so thankful you asked. Thank you. Oh, of course. We uh, we love you. You consider you a dear friend. Oh, I do and, too. And uh, hope and wish nothing but the best for you. And can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you. This is uh this is us saying goodbye. Say goodbye, John. Goodbye, John. Oh, he remembered. <laughs> this has been our lovely friend Michelle Collins, and we are signing off from the This Is Not Church podcast. Have a great day, y'all. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.